Inside the Adventure Season 1, Episode Number 3 with Blair Braverman. If you've ever been afraid to step outside your comfort zone, then you're in the right place. Inside the Adventure features incredible athletes and everyday people sharing their epic stories of pushing life to its limits. Get ready to be inspired, face your fears, and take action with your host, Marshall Mosier. What's up, everyone? This is your host, Marshall Mosier, and I am so excited to have you join us today on our third episode of Inside the Adventure, where we get to hear from an incredible guest, Blair Braverman. How's it going today, Blair? Uh, it's, it's great. I have uh, four dogs with me now and nine puppies, which is, which is nothing. Um, and uh, it's pretty quiet. Summer is the off season for dog sledding. <laughs> nice. Yeah. So for everyone out there that's listening... That's like, wait, four dogs? That's that's nothing? I think that's a lot. Just to give you a little more background on Blair, uh, Blair's a, a nonfiction writer and musher uh, who trains and races uh, sled dogs uh, up in northern Wisconsin. So uh, so four is not uh, not too many compared to what the average group is around, you know, 16 or, or more, right? Uh, it, it depends. I normally have uh, around 21 dogs here on the farm. Uh, but most of them are up in Alaska, actually, right now, working at a tourist operation because uh, it's it's cold up there. It's their summer camp. Oh, that's that's awesome. So, do they usually stay up there year round? And uh, maybe your favorites come back with you. Uh, I, I don't know if we <laughs> phrase like that for them, they might get mad. But. <laughs> no, no, they're they're here year round. But my fiance went up to Alaska to work for the summer, and he brought most of our dogs. Uh, up there to be with him and then in September he'll come back and they'll come back and we'll start our fall training. Oh, that's awesome. Wow, so what's the um kind of like the the season timeline for that? Uh it really depends. It's the general guideline is that sled dogs shouldn't run when it's over 50 degrees. So as soon as the nights start dipping below 50, last year it was October, but hopefully it'll be sooner than that. Then I can start going out first thing in the morning before dawn or at night and uh, running them just three miles or so on the trails. There's a there's a huge network of trails that connects to the property here, and I mean hundreds of miles of trails. Wow! And uh, then by the end of the season in March, they'll be able to go a hundred miles in a go. So they really build up their endurance every year, and and that's a big part of my job is is doing that with them. Wow! That's that's amazing. Um, I, uh, I know most people out there, um, are probably fascinated by dog sledding, but don't know a ton about it. Uh, give like a brief overview of, of, uh, just kind of the sport, um, how it works and, uh, just kind of an explanation a little bit more so we can kind of get that, uh, that vivid picture in people's minds. (laughs) Well, well, you take some dogs and, uh, you, you tie them to the front of a sled (laughs) <laughs> that's pretty simple. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's yeah. it is that simple and they do pull you uh your job as a musher is to manage the team which is not easy. I mean anyone who's ever had a pet dog will know how distinct their personalities are. So a lot of it feels like uh just managing these personalities, making sure they all get along, um figuring out which dogs are going to be the lead dogs up in front 
uh, training them to do things like go through water on command, turn right or left, cross roads, uh, obey traffic commands, you know, stay on the right of way when you're passing snowmobiles or cars. Um, and are there a lot of commands that, um, that you can call to the group and they'll do a certain action? There's not a ton. Uh, there's, there's right and left, hurry up, uh, slow down only if they feel like it, they'll listen to that. And then, uh, <laughs> the big joke is that, uh, the command for stop, which is, whoa, is way more of a suggestion than a command because there's nothing you can do to actually stop them. Once they uh, get their eyes set on they, something, they keep going. They right? love running like nothing else. I mean, it's basically like if you tell... Uh, your Labrador or your Golden Retriever to sit, and then you throw a bunch of tennis balls right where it loves to run. (laughs) And if you have 12 dogs there and you can get all of them to sit entirely still while you throw tennis balls, that's kind of what it's like to get a dog team to stop pulling. Oh, wow. Yeah, so there's uh, not too much hope there, I guess, for for actually. (laughs) What if if you're you're on a a really long trip and – um, and something happens where they, uh, you really need to get them to stop to, uh, to really be able to continue. Well, that's where, uh, that's where the collaboration comes in. So I have a couple dogs that I really have great contact with and that I've had since they were puppies. And then, you know, I have some newer members of my team and you've got to have a couple dogs in key positions that you really trust to, to be able to communicate with you. And uh, you also have a snow hook, which is like this big anchor that you kick into the snow and it may or may not come flying back out. <laughs> uh, and you can tie off to trees. I do some of that sort of lasso a tree as I go by. Um, you can usually stop them for a while, but then they'll, it's the starting again that's tricky. They'll, if they, if they want to start again, all you have to do is open your mouth or you know, take a step and they'll, they'll interpret every sound as the command to go. Oh, wow. Uh, and, you know, pretend that they think that's the right thing to do. Yeah, that's really interesting. I know um, most people that have experience with dogs usually uh, only have experience with, with maybe one or two. So is the dynamic between, um, you know, a personal individual interaction with a single dog versus when all the dogs get into a pack, uh, I'm sure they, they act very differently and behave very differently, right? And how do you handle that? They're very dog-oriented dogs. Uh, you know, they're very interested in people. They love people. Uh, I have a lot of kids come into my kennel, things like that. So it's really important to me that all of my dogs are very well socialized and cuddly and uh, you know, they love human attention, but their most of their communal life is with other dogs. And, and so that's sort of what they're paying attention to the most. And they'll be uh, negotiating friendships and rivalries and um, flirtations and all sorts of things out on the trail. And that's part of what I most enjoy about it is learning to watch these tiny body movements, uh, to sort of watch the group as a whole, the way they're constantly negotiating each other. Uh, That sounds amazing to be a part of that. It is, it is. And then, you know, you learn a lot of little tricks to, to just make it easier. Cause if I have a new dog come into my kennel, for instance, uh, you know, maybe I'm borrowing a friend's dog for a couple months or something like that. Uh, I have to, establish a relationship with that dog quickly 
And even if I'm spending eight hours a day with all my dogs, uh, that doesn't mean eight hours a day working with an individual dog like you might have a pet beside you. Uh, so there really isn't an opportunity for for them to <laughs> I don't know what I'm trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> I just ha- I just have to establish authority and trust very quickly. Exactly. Yeah, it seems like it. Um, I know there's there's so many sports out there uh, that are. Uh, very much a team effort, uh, but it's it's so unique where the the team uh, has such a different type of dynamic um, in this sport. Absolutely. So it's, I mean, an interesting thing about mushers is it's one of the only sports, one of only three sports where men and women compete together equally. Uh, so that makes it unique. And it's also a sport that you get better at as you get older. Uh, so there's certainly very competitive mushers who are marathon runners and they're young, young people, 20, 30, uh, sort of can spend a lot of hours running behind the sled. And then there's a lot of people who are in their 50s and 60s who really sort of dominate um, because so much of the sport is about things like sleep deprivation and understanding of weather conditions and communication with the dogs and strategy uh that you really only get better at with more time and experience that's fascinating it's uh it's something i've always wanted to try personally um and well you should you should come up here and try I need it to, yeah I, I i'll take you to. there's there's not much uh dog sledding in atlanta georgia where where i am right now <laughs> i bet not <laughs> the other thing i like about it that's also the hard thing about it uh and i think a lot of outdoor pursuits are like this but You know, if I take out my 10 dogs and I go out in the woods and we are 20 miles out and the sled breaks or we encounter a bear or a wolf or a moose or the trail is flooded over or a bridge is out or all these things that happen way more often than I wish they did, uh, there's no one out there to help you. I mean... Not only are you responsible for yourself, but you're responsible for 10 individual dogs, each of which uh, may have a different idea for how to handle that situation. Oh, right. Yeah. It's, and, uh, and they're responsible for you, too. That's a whole another type of leadership that um, that is it seems like it's so different uh, from from any other group scenario uh, because of uh, just because of how unique the team is. That's. That's so uh, such an incredible environment to be in. Um, but what, what's it like when you're when you're out there um, and you're you're so far away from uh, really any help if if help were to come and you know that you're um, uh, you have to handle every situation yourself as it comes to you? What what's that feeling like? Well, I'm an overthinker and I like to be very prepared for anything that might happen. And dog sledding. Uh, is the opposite of that. So in in some ways, it's a nightmare sport for me. And I've really had to challenge myself. I fell in love with the sport. And I kept thinking the first couple years that I did it that I would get better at preventing uh, these unpredictable situations. Which as you know, when you're in the wilderness, there's, there's no way to prevent weather or animals or conditions, any of those things. Uh, and so what I've had to do is stop worrying and stop predicting. And that's been the hardest thing for me that I still struggle with. Uh, but, you know, I make sure to bring a certain amount of equipment, uh, a certain amount of food, 
I always keep a lot of it in my parka, not just in the sled in case I lose the sled. If the dogs run off with it, I don't want all my safety equipment to be gone and (laughs) running away from me. Right. Uh, And then there's just a certain amount of resignation that whatever happens uh, is going to happen. And I'm going to have a knife and a rope and matches and uh, a dog first aid kit to deal with it. And it's not an option. I'm going to have to deal with it with those objects. And every situation is going to be different. So that's that resignation has actually been really good for my mental health, I think. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sure. I loved what you said uh, when you first started off saying that you originally went into the sport um, trying to learn how to uh, kind of prevent situations from happening and being really controlling. But as you got uh, more advanced and as, as you progressed uh, through it, it's it's more of learning how to um, how to face whatever happens uh, and be the most prepared you can be, even in the face of situations that you can't um, quite predict. Mm-hmm. And you know, I've been lucky so far. I have never been seriously injured while I'm out dog sledding. Uh, it certainly could happen, <laughs> but. I I used to think, I used to go out every day with the dogs. I got into the sport when I was 18, uh, and I'm 28 now, so 10 years. And I I moved to the Norwegian Arctic from California. That's how I got into dog sledding. I knew that I wanted to do it. And I used to go out every day with a team of six dogs and tell myself that if I could just have a clean run, if I could just have a run where the dogs didn't get tangled and we didn't fall into a pit or a bog or anything like that. And we didn't, uh, you know, go off after a herd of reindeer or any of the things that happened all the time up there, that if I just had one clean run, then I'd know that there was a chance that I could be a musher. And I was up there for a year and that whole year, I just, every day I told myself that and it, it never once happened. Uh, I never once had the clean run that I had told myself would be the way I, I could prove myself. It never, never came. <laughs> and at, last year, I was thinking about that. I was remembering that because I, I was out dog sledding again every day. Uh, I got my own team two and a half, three years ago. So until then, I was only helping with other mushers teams. And I, I was wondering if I'd finally accomplished that because I realized I was so much more comfortable every time I went out. And I started going through all the runs I'd had that week in my head. And I realized that every one of them had been something, uh, had involved something that would have struck me as a disaster that first year. And it wasn't that I'd learned to prevent those crises. It was that I no longer saw them as crises. I just saw them as part of dog sledding. Wow. So it's, it really gives a, a really strong perspective change uh, in terms of what you view as um, something that could go wrong versus uh, just part of the sport and and kind of handling it as it comes. Exactly. Well, that's incredible. I, I would love to learn a little bit more about how you first got started. So going going back when to when you were eighteen, is that when you said you got started? Uh, yeah, I did. So I so, grew up. Yeah, I grew up in Northern California. <laughs> oh wow! Okay, so not, not too much uh, <laughs> where it was very hot all the time, and I 
you know, I, my favorite book was about Balto. My mom loved Alaska. So I was always looking, she got me all these picture books about it. Uh, but I can't really say why I wanted to be a dog sledder. <laughs> there's no, there's no actual reason. I just did. And I, I found a folk school. I'd lived in Norway as a kid while my father was on sabbatical. And then I also was an exchange student there in high school. Uh, so I decided to go back for a gap year program to a folk school, which is a year long boarding school uh, that studies something entirely impractical and uh, is paid for by the state tuition free. And I, I discovered this folk school that was the smallest folk school in Norway. It was 200 miles above the Arctic Circle, 40 students uh, living together all year, learning dog sledding and Arctic survival. So, of course, because I was from Northern California and had, uh, you know, never even had snow at home, I thought that would be perfect for me. And I, uh, I, I applied and I, I went there. And, of course, because I was applying for colleges in the U.S. at the same time, I was worried about my GPA and sending my transcripts and all the things that applying to a school requires. And I, I learned later that the only reason that that school wanted transcripts was to make sure that students hadn't failed gym. Really? Uh, hadn't failed gym? <laughs> yeah, they hadn't failed gym. Wow. Uh, and I had never thought of myself as particularly athletic either. Uh, but I, but I did want to do, <laughs> to do this thing. Uh, so I went up there. I, I was there for a year. Uh, it was bizarre. <laughs> And and when my visa ran out, I applied for jobs in Alaska as a dog sledder. And I, I began working as a dog sled guide on a glacier. Uh, and I ended up working there for two seasons. So I then I left Alaska for a while. <laughs> and I, I skipped out on dog sledding for a couple years and only got back to it again more recently. Uh, so a lot of that, I actually, my first book just came out. And a lot of it covers that first trip north and negotiating that kind of landscape and being a young woman in that kind of landscape and uh, sort of figuring out what my place might be on the frontier. That's amazing. And congratulations on your first book. For everyone out there listening, uh, Blair just published a book called Welcome to the Goddamn Ice Cube, which I'm so excited to read. I love that title, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Thank you. I can't believe they let me use it. That's that's amazing. I uh, I it it couldn't be any better. Um, <laughs> but uh, for everyone out there listening, I'll put a link to her book in the show notes. So uh, if um, if you think this story is as, as fascinating as I do and and want to learn more, definitely go check out her book. Um, I'm really excited to read it myself as well. Thank you. But I I would love to. Uh, hear more about how did it feel when you first got out there and tried it for the first time? I know I'm sure that um, the perception of what it's like uh, versus the experience of actually doing it uh, are probably very different. Uh, and what what was uh, that first experience like for you? Uh, it It was shocking. And I think that's most people's first experience dog sledding. If anyone's ever been on a tour, they uh, tend to come back and say the same things, which is that it was utterly overwhelming to set out on the trail. Uh, and then it was silent and the dogs loved it. I mean, those are the three things that, that stand out to most people and that stood out to me. Uh, the first thing is when you go into a dog sled kennel, the dogs go nuts. Uh, they see you carrying harnesses. They know they're about to run. 
uh, you might have 10 or 20 or 30 dogs out there and they all just start barking and howling and jumping. And that's pretty overwhelming if you haven't been around a dog team that's that excited before. Uh, so people can get nervous around that even if they're, even if they're very used to dogs. Uh, you hook up the dogs to the sled. They are leaping. They're trying to go. They're trying to unhook the sled from whatever it's tied off to. <laughs> and so when you get on the sled, it's really shaking. I mean, it's lurching beneath you. Uh, and you have to sort of jump onto it. Wow. Uh, so it's already it's already about to be in motion. And you got to. Yeah, it's already <laughs> in motion. And you're wow. going to be on it or not. Uh, and then the moment you leave the kennel, it all goes silent. Uh, it just, you know, just like that, like a switch. Suddenly, it's one of the quietest things I've ever experienced. That's amazing. Where you wouldn't think that that would be the case with, um, with a, a pack of dogs. But I oh, they they're so they just fall silent. They put their heads down. Uh, they put their tails down. They just lean into the harness. Um, all you can hear usually is the sound of the runners of the sled over snow, which are sort of whooshing or whispering over the snow. And then very silent um, footsteps, right, from the dog team, but quiet, dog's feet on snow. And then if they are wearing collars with tags, you can hear the tags jingling. And those are all such quiet sounds. But when you're out there in the wilderness listening to them for hours, it just becomes such a melody almost. I mean, I can just close my eyes and hear that trio of sounds at any moment. Uh, and they'll, they'll just keep going. And it's beautiful. I mean, it is utterly hypnotic. You're going through a winter landscape. Uh, you can go to places that you can't get to, uh, certainly not by snowmobile or car, uh, you know, and farther than you can get by snowmobiling, cross-country skiing, you'd have to be a much better cross-country skier than me to get this far into the backcountry. <laughs> uh, so you're seeing these really, I mean, I often think of it as like Dr. Seuss, the sort of like lumpy snow, bowed trees, uh, spectacular places with these dogs that are just doing what they were born to do. And it's incredibly moving. Uh, and and for me, I get I get sort of hypnotized and obsessed with the rhythms of the dog's footprints, footsteps, uh, and that's partly my job because I'm, you know, I, I serve many roles. I'm responsible for uh, their veterinary care or getting them veterinary care. I'm responsible for paying attention to how their gait might change, uh, all sorts of things. Um, but every one of them has a slightly different rhythm that they run with, and I. I love just watching their little feet punch up and down and, uh, you know, for hours, it's a small thing, but I, I love that. That's incredible. I bet it's such a, a hypnotizing sound, um, and experience to, to be out there and, and see all the places that so few people get to see and hear some of those incredible sounds. I don't know if, uh, it's, it's possible, but have you ever tried to bring a mic out there and, and record that? I have, I have not a, not a good mic, but I recorded it on my phone. <laughs> oh yeah. You got to bring a better mic than that. 
I know. I know. Uh, next time, next time you go, we'll we'll see if we can hook you up with the setup. That'd be awesome to put uh, put something like that at the end of this episode. Um, so listen to it. I'm, I'm sure <laughs> we nothing. We may have is, to wait uh, till December. Well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> we can always do uh, do um, you know follow up episode as well. There we go. Well, I, I'll see about that. Um, yeah, that would be great. Absolutely. Speaking of December, aren't you training for um, a race right now? I am. Actually, as of the spring, I'm training for the Iditarod, That's which amazing. is... And tell people a little bit more about what that is for anyone who doesn't know. Yeah, the Iditarod is a 1,100-mile dog sled race across the state of Alaska. Uh, and it's typically, one of the most it, famous ones in the world, right? It is. It is. It's not... It's one of the longest, uh, certainly the most famous. It's not necessarily the hardest, but it's the most well-marketed. Uh and people will often ask if you're a dog sledder, they'll often say, oh, have you done the Idita Rid? I mean, they, you know, <laughs> people have this it. sort of idea about it. <laughs> that's and that's funny. kind of like if you found out your friend uh, has taken up jogging, asking them if they're going to run in the Olympics. Uh, <laughs> people, <laughs> like there's no good answer except for, there's no good answer. Is this your first um, time? Yes. <laughs> That'll be amazing. It, it will be. It's a multi-year process of qualifying. You need to do 700 miles of qualifying races uh, while being supervised by and graded by a team of veterinarians and uh, race officials, judges, and they grade you on things like uh, cold tolerance and friendliness when uncomfortable. <laughs> wow, that's... <laughs> Ability to care for the dog's feet. I mean, this report card you get is uh, incredible. It's wow. so funny. Um, and, you know, to get there, it's also incredibly expensive. Uh, I think the estimates tend to be between thirty and $50,000 to run the race once. Uh, you don't get that money back. Wow. Is that just the entrance fee or does that go into the equipment and the gear and the provisions? That's equipment and travel and uh, certainly the gear, the provisions. I mean, it's a couple thousand dollars in dog booties alone. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, and then, you know, any equipment you'd need to be out living in 40 below. I mean, that is not – I tend to be averse to gear. I uh, I always think I can do without whatever sort of the latest gear is. And I think that's from learning in northern Norway where uh, people love their wool sweaters and they – make a lot of their stuff themselves and they sort of, uh, there's a pride in not using, uh, a lot of manufactured gear, at least in the culture that I was in. Uh, but you, you can't go out in 40 below unless you're pretty darn well dressed, uh, and your dogs exactly. too. <laughs> That's incredible. Are, are you, oh. are you excited? Are you nervous? How are you feeling going up to that? Is this I am something excited. you've always uh, had as a, a goal you've wanted to do? I am excited. There are actually many, many more people who have climbed Mount Everest successfully than run the Iditarod. Wow, that really puts it into perspective. Yeah. Um, it's, I mean, there's a couple hundred people, I believe, who have ever done the race. Uh, it's, a, it's a huge ordeal. And I... I always thought, you know, I'm I'm in this to have fun. I'm going to I'm going to sort of move up the ranks of dog sledding until it stops being fun and then I I don't have any interest in in going any further if it's not fun for me or the dogs. Uh but this winter I started doing 
much longer races than I'd done before. And I moved into the uh, around 200 mile class and I loved it so much. Uh, I, I thought that I wouldn't like those long, long races. And, uh, you know, now I can't imagine going back to a 60 mile race. It seems like, uh, you know, so boring, (laughs) (laughs) such a letdown. Uh, yeah, if it's not 200 miles then, you know, (laughs) (laughs) I entered my first Iditarod qualifier this spring and, uh, then I'll be entering two more is the plan this coming winter, one 300 mile and one 200 mile. And uh, if all goes well, that should qualify me for the Iditarod in 2018. Wow, that's incredible. It's, it's amazing how it's, um, it's such a lengthy process, but um, even, even outside of the process, it seems like it's uh, truly an incredible collection of of racers who, uh, who end up going almost like, seems like it's almost like a, you know, an exclusive, uh, uh, dog sledder club where if you even just entering into the race, um, uh, takes so much, um, so much, uh, of time and planning and experience. Absolutely. I mean, it is, it is such a tremendous effort, (laughs) not just for the person, but every single dog has to be prepared for that. Um, there's a huge team behind the team, as I suspect is true for, for a lot of different sports. So uh, for me, that means my fiance is my handler, which is fairly unusual to be a woman with a male handler, uh, which means when we show up at races, people always hand the race bib to him and then get really confused. Uh, so they assume that um, it's the other way around? Yes, pretty much always. Even though I thought it was interesting that you mentioned that dog sledding is one of the only sports where both men and women can compete together, um, even with that, is it still more male-dominated? Uh, it's absolutely male-dominated. And there are fantastic women in the sport. And I've had a lot of great role models and mentors who are women and men. Uh, but especially the higher up you go or the longer the races you're entering, the more competitive you are. Uh, the fewer women there are in proportion. So some of the first races I entered that were 20 miles, it would be more than half women. And, uh, you know, I was in some musher meetings this past spring where I was the only woman in a room full of men. And uh, so that that certainly changes as you go up. I think about 25% of the Iditarod entrants are women. Wow. Well, I... I um... Uh, I'm sure that it, it must be extremely inspiring to for a lot of the women out there who who want to get into the sport and want to be just like you to to see what you've done and uh, and to do the same. <laughs> well, I I feel like I'm inspired by other women in the sport, but uh, if if that's true, I'm I'm really glad. I think it's such a good sport for girls. So I'm always I have a number of girls of various ages in the kennel and boys, but I especially love to see, uh, kids or teenage girls taking up dog sledding because there's so much that I think they in particular have to gain from it. Absolutely. Yeah. It seems like, um, regardless of gender, it's, it's such an empowering sport, um, that really, that it really brings out so many good qualities in people that I'm sure it'd be so beneficial, beneficial for so many young women out there to, uh, to have that sense of empowerment and use dog sledding. 
um, uh, and really take those those values uh, and apply it to all different aspects of life. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the self-reliance for me, I I'm a writer. I spend a lot of time when I'm not dog sledding, staring at a screen and I'm very grateful, even if it's not a training day, that I am forced to go outside and chop frozen meat for 20 dogs and haul around buckets of water and shovel their poop and say hello to all of them. And, you know, I'm forced to be outside for at least two hours every day doing physical work, whether I want to or not. And uh, sometimes I don't want to do that if it's raining, (laughs) but I'm always grateful that that's in my life. I think it can only make it better. And just in terms of, I mean, you see little girls and they have to learn how to give dogs commands so the dogs will listen. Uh, girls who always have that sort of upswing in their voice, you know, like this. And and suddenly they're having to speak firmly and authoritatively. Um, and I, I've noticed that translate into uh, other conversations that they have with humans things like that, going out, being responsible for the dog, self-reliance. I mean, uh, there's a lot of sports they could get that from, but I, I'm partial to this one. Absolutely. Yeah. If you can lead a pack of dogs, you can, you can do anything. (laughs) (laughs) It does make other things a lot less scary. Exactly. It's, it's always so interesting to see the parallels between, um, all of the amazing things that so many of our guests have done, uh, and how they've taken those, uh, those experiences and applied them to everyday life. Um, it, it seems like the common theme across the board, regardless of the sport, um, is that it really does have a lot of positive takeaways that you can bring back, uh, to everyday life, even when you're, uh, off the trail or, you know, off the sled, hmm. and, um, and, uh, doing anything else. It's, it seems like it's extremely beneficial. I'm sure. Yeah. I, well, I can't wait to hear those. Yeah, yeah, there's some really incredible ones. I'm excited uh, for you to hear them as well. But um, I, I've really loved your story. Thanks so much for sharing it with us. Um, and I, I want to ask one more question: um, if if you could have, if you could say one piece of advice to um, to all the listeners out there, especially to all the young women who have been really inspired by your story uh, and and want to pick up and do the same, uh, what would that piece of advice be um, in in how to get started and, and where to go. (laughs) Uh, I think, I think find good mentors is, is a huge one. Uh, that's been huge in my life for writing and for dog sledding. Uh, I think that at least something that's happened to me, (laughs) uh, most of the good changes in my life have, been somewhat forced upon me before I felt I was ready for them. And, you know, I had an opportunity, I wasn't ready for it, but I decided to take it anyway. And that's how I ended up with my dog team. That's how I uh, sold a book. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I'm always grateful in retrospect, but the big changes are scary, even when they're good. So you're never going to feel totally confident in them. Uh, But but if it's something you want, you should do it anyway. Exactly. Yeah, you just got to keep putting yourself in situations that might not be comfortable at the moment. But um, uh, in the end, it, it always is just the right amount um, to push you forward uh, and get you to where you need to be. Mm-hmm. And I think people know if something's too far. I don't worry about exactly. that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I, I would love to hear what... Um, 
what kind of your reaction was um, to uh, to people when you first kind of committed to saying, I'm going to try this for the first time. I'm going to do this. I'm going to learn how to be a dog sledder. Did you have a lot of people saying, uh, well, that's a little crazy. Like, you really sure you don't want to just go to uh, do something like a little, a little more normal. Like, how did you get past all the people that tried to tell you no and follow your dreams and, and accomplish it anyways? Well, when I first took up dog sledding, I think, uh, there's a kind of forgiveness for that kind of thing when you're 18 or 19 or 20, uh, you know, oh, she's taking a gap year. Uh, <laughs> there was a story people could <laughs> right. tell around it. Uh, so I didn't get any of that. Then people said, oh, you know, it's so cool. Uh, but I think when I got my own dogs, that was the turning point where people started realizing, oh, shit, she's serious about this. <laughs> uh, and, you know, that is a turning point for me, too. Once you have dogs, you're responsible for them for the rest of their lives. But uh, I think that was concerned my parents at first. And, uh, you know, some other people, I only... I only got six dogs at first. Um, okay, so only six. <laughs> but, you know, then I got 15 more. <laughs> uh, and I just, uh, I don't know, I was kind of too busy to be concerned with people's responses because I was taking care of the dogs. Exactly. Well, that's, that's good that it keeps you busy. But um, the reason why I asked that is it seems like a very common theme. Um that's really at the center of a lot of really incredible stories and a lot of um, of people that have done some amazing things. Um, it's very unconventional. So a lot of people, uh, it seems to be that a lot of their stories involve people telling them, um, you shouldn't do that. And that's, that's crazy. That's a, um, you know, an idea that maybe, maybe is a fad, but you shouldn't, you shouldn't keep pursuing it like you are. But uh, it seems like, a lot of the courage in the sport. It's almost just as hard um, to, you know, get through a, a 200 mile race as it is to tell all of the people who really care about you, no, this is what I'm going to do. And this is what I'm going to focus on because this is what I love. Um, and I'm, I'm going to make a career out of it. Um, so it seems like it really does take a lot of courage to, um, to, to say that and to own that yourself as well. Well, thank you. I think that uh, I added weird things to my life so gradually that I sort of tricked the people around me into accepting <laughs> That's the it. best way to do it. I'll <laughs> um, say so you do well. Yeah, yeah. I've actually found people have been really supportive. And yeah, I, I think the getting dogs was the turning point that you're talking about, uh, where it was one thing to know that I ran other people's dogs and a very different thing to know that I owned my own team. Uh, but for me, that was a really exciting change too. I was, I was ready for my own team. I didn't, I didn't want to be running other people's dogs anymore because I wanted to be able to make the decisions based on my own experience. Exactly. And I'm sure that makes such a big difference in terms of the team dynamics and the factor of, um, of having them actually be your, your own dogs. I'm sure it's such a stronger team unit. It's much stronger than I ever realized it would be. Uh, it's almost incomparable. It's like a physical sport going out with dogs you don't know that well. 
uh, or in my case, I'd work with people for a season and train their dogs for them. Uh, and you're going out and you're managing the team and you're driving the sled and you're chopping up meat and sort of the general tasks. But there's a kind of fusion almost that happens when it's, it's your dogs or it's dogs, you know, really well, uh, that I could never have predicted. Exactly. Yeah. That's, um, it's really incredible. I'm sure to, uh, to see that come along in a, in a whole new sense, especially after you've had so much experience running other teams. Um, I'm sure that was a big turning point. Uh, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, it was, it would be hard for me to go back. I mean, dog sledding is an interesting culture because it tends, there's no sort of communal organization running the sport that, I mean, there's some organizations, but not really anything flagship. Um, and what that means, most people who get into mushing almost do it by accident is the story I've heard. They get one husky and then they want to have them pull them on skis and they get another husky and, oh, what if they had puppies? Oh, now they have 10 huskies. Now they're seeing what happens if they tie them all together. Um, and 30 years later, <laughs> they're still dog sledding. <laughs> exactly. uh, so, and there's also a kind of apprenticeship culture where that's one way that people get into it. And then another is by being handlers for someone else who already has their own team, which is something I did for years. And I've had my own handlers and it's very much a tradition of apprenticeship that I'm not sure I see paralleled in any other part of our culture. Uh, so what I got to do then I worked since I worked at a number of different kennels is yeah, I had to totally start over anytime I went somewhere new because since each musher tended to figure things out on their own, they had wildly different methods and strategies and theories and feeding and everything was different. Um, but as I went from kennel to kennel, I would pick up on the things I liked. Oh, I like the way these dog houses are shaped. Oh, I like this feeding schedule. Oh, I like this training method. Uh, so I felt like by the time I got my own, I had just picked these little bits and pieces from all the kennels I'd been exposed to. And I had a very strong feeling about what methods I thought were best. Exactly. So you can use all those little experiences from all those different places and bring them together to form the ultimate uh, um, kind of collection of, of things that you really want for yourself. Definitely. The ultimate for me, that's for sure. Exactly. Right. Well, thanks so much for, for sharing your story with us, Blair. And for everyone out there uh, that, um, that has loved it as much as, as I have, definitely check out Blair's book. Uh, we're going to put a link to it in the show notes. Um, and if you want to get into dog sledding as well, if this has really inspired you uh, to go out and, and um, create that new type of, of life experience, uh, just like Blair did for herself, um, I'm sure, uh, I'm sure you'd be happy to, to talk to anyone out there who would like to follow a similar path, right, Blair? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, people can write me. My email is mountaindogsracing at gmail.com. And if you're interested in being a handler or getting into it, I'm, I know a lot of people who might want handlers and I, awesome. I could try yeah. to hook you up. <laughs> well, there you go, guys, everyone out there, uh, plenty of uh, opportunities to get involved. Well, thanks so much, Blair. Uh, it's been incredible listening to your story. Um, I can't wait to read your book uh, and uh, would love to come join you um, and uh, go uh, out on the sled <laughs> at some point as well. 
<laughs> Good. I'll, uh, I'll give you a fast team and I'll send you out. Oh, great. So, just throw me in the deep end. <laughs> there you go. It's the best way to learn. Exactly. That's, that's right. That's what we were saying. So, well, thanks so much, Blair. Uh, it's been incredible. Um, and thanks so much for being on the show with us. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by Vestigo, a peer-to-peer adventure sharing platform that lets people experience the best an area has to offer by connecting with the local professionals that both have the gear and the knowledge to facilitate incredible and unique outdoor experiences. People have even called it an Airbnb for outdoor guides. Recently, we talked to Tyler, a fan of Vestigo who has gone on four trips so far. Let's see here. So I guess the most memorable so far is uh, Mount Yona. It's my favorite spot. I've gone there with Vestigo, and then naturally I've gone there by myself a couple times afterwards because I loved it. Most memorable because I went rappelling off the side of a mountain for the first time. Do you think you would have gone rappelling if you were not on a Vestigo trip? I do not. No. Uh, Maybe someday in the future. Uh, of course, just like anything else, you'd be like, yeah, I can get around to that. Vestigo allowed it to be like, let's do it. You want to do it? Here's when, here's where, you know, let's go. What would you say to someone that is on the fence about going on a trip? Go. Just go now. It's, uh, it's, you, you just can't beat it. You can't do it yourself. It's not like they're providing someone the motivation to do something that they could do themselves, but maybe don't. I mean, and, and, and they can, but it's just, there's nothing matched going in a group. I mean, if you want to go on vacation somewhere, whether you want to do some activity, like having the group of people makes it, just makes it. And uh, so, so going to do something for the first time with 10 to 15 other people who might also be doing it for the first time that maybe I know them, maybe I don't, we can kind of share our, you know, nerves or experiences or how awesome it was afterwards. Um, and then just going with someone that knowledgeable, um, you know, it's, it just all around, I enjoyed it so much that I've gone back three times since. Vestigo, an adventure sharing platform that provides people the knowledge, confidence, and safety to repel off a cliff for the first time. To learn more about Vestigo, visit their website at vestigo.co, V-E-S-T-I-G-O dot C-O. When you sign up for your trip, use the promo code podcast and receive 10% off your first trip. Vestigo, find an adventure, book a trip, go.